You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Friends, we are really excited for our conversation. We have just a terrific guest with us, and we're really excited to share this conversation with you. Um, today, we have in conversation Mara Sarji. Uh, she is a PhD student in theology, born and raised in Nazareth. She became passionate for justice and peace in Palestine. She received her bachelor's in sociology, anthropology, and business administration, and her master's in sociology and anthropology from both Tel Aviv University. During her studies, Mara became active among Kofia and Salib, a movement of young Palestinian Christians seeking to reconcile faith and identity following colonization and Western theological influences in Palestinian Christianity. Mara's research focuses on the life experiences of struggle and steadfastness of women in Palestine, their faith in God and belief in divine sovereignty. Her research interests also include womanist theology, Palestinian liberation theology, anthropology of theology, coloniality, and decolonization. Uh, we are just so pleased to have you with us. Welcome to Inverse Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to be here. But uh, um, we we often provide a little space yeah, as we start for people to talk about um, particular uh, passion projects or um, uh, books even that they have coming out. Um, uh, we just want to give you an opportunity that as the conversation weaves on and we explore wherever we'll go, that if people are wanting to follow your work, if people are wanting to go deeper, where can people find you? And uh, other than your PhD at Princeton, what else are you working on at the moment? Or is that all your time? Um, so for now, that's all I'm doing. Um, I haven't had any, answer, right? like, I didn't, I don't have a public <laughs> social media presence for things that we will talk about in this podcast, yeah. uh, in this episode. Um, but I would encourage you to follow the Kofiyu Salib movement. Um, mm. That's mm. like, if I will do any work, it's usually there with mm. among people. Um, I, I can drop it in the chat later on yeah wonderful thank you excellent um so one of the things that we like to do in this uh for inverse is just kind of set the tone by letting a biblical passage kind of be read up front that can kind of shape our conversation that we can then return to later so what is the biblical passage that you've chosen to read today um so for today i decided to read from john chapter 8 uh, verses uh, 31 and 32. Um, I will read it now and then we can speak about it more. Uh, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Um, I chose this passage because as you've seen, um, with likely what's been going on in Gaza, Palestine, Israel, um, we are really seeing uh, a challenge um, over what is truth, uh, who determines what truth is, um, and how we understand what truth is in general. Um, mm. 
if we think about just the word truth itself um it might mean truthfulness the right thing uh the fact um it might also mean right in terms of law uh, in arabic it's translated as haq uh, and haq also has this uh understanding of justice um so it's like truth and justice together um and it's the one who like who uh who's just in their decisions and judgments um and it is really true under what considerations we're talking about um so i think since i've moved to princeton uh in august i've realized that there is really a struggle for truth back home um mm. be it on the political narratives of peoples um and we see it in europe now with europeans banning pro palestinian rallies uh or yeah. anyone who speaks for palestine um we've seen it on university campuses in the united states mm-hmm. where whoever um speaks out for palestine um is easily framed as anti-semitic um and if i look back home um i am an israeli citizen um i'm a palestinian who holds an israeli citizenship um and the state of israel has enacted a law under this emergency state where um it bans consumption uh of content that supports terrorism um or that if anyone um communicates something that would hurt the national morale a uh, of the state of the people uh, they can be in jail up to 1 year uh, so we see that there is also like this attempt by the authorities their various authorities to really uh, contain what truth is um and have a monopoly over who sets the truth what can be identified or what can be considered as truth um mm. and which content can be in it um Mara, and I'm, I'm i just fascinated sorry yeah, I, you after you um i just wanted to lift up the palestinian students who are being detained in the west bank mm. yeah. um just to mention ruba asi uh, she's mm. a student at birzeit university and a leader in the students movement there uh she was kidnapped and arrested early in the morning on the 7th of october um after she's already spent in jail 20 21 months in administrative detention and just yesterday she was transferred into administrative detention for another 6 months um so it's we see like when we talk about truth it is a struggle mm-hmm. and people are put in jail for speaking the truth or for demanding to know the truth um so yeah Yeah, thank you. But uh, I'm fascinated by the dynamics that you've named that in nations like Germany, we have Jewish people being arrested for raising the reality of what the Israeli state is doing to Palestinians. Um Columbia University, we have Jewish Voices for Peace who um the university has actually withdrawn uh their certification as a campus group um uh um because of the pressure of donors. And the other example you mentioned was um what people are actually experiencing um uh in the nation state of Israel citizens are experiencing where um uh those who are identified by the Israeli state as Arab Israelis um their phones are searched they're stopped um a, a police officer or a soldier can take your phone can look and if there's anything that they deem uh to be in any way critical of the state 
um, which is often associated with supporting terrorism because of the current war on Gaza, that they can be detained. And um, that detention um, is indefinite. But I'm fascinated, even before we get to the, the first question around when did you first encounter the scriptures, um, would you talk to us a little about um, uh, the fact that um, you identify as a Palestinian? Uh, uh, Israelis um, might describe you as an Israeli Arab. How is that experience different from uh, what a Palestinian um, would experience um, uh, in the West Bank, um, although you yourself are actually from Nazareth. W would you invite us into some of the complexities of that reality and the strangeness? And I hope um, you don't mind sharing something of my story in this question. But because of my mum's side of the family, I've been offered citizenship in this place that your family has been for I don't know how many hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, and yet I have no connection. Um, would you talk and invite us into that reality? Yeah, for sure. Um, in order to understand how we became Arab Israelis, we have to understand what happened in 1948. Um, mm -hmm. For Palestinians, we call it the Nakba, the catastrophe. For Israelis, it was the war of independence. But in any case, there was a war. Uh, people were fighting. Um, and when the state of Israel was established, there, there, within the borders of the state of Israel, um, there was a minority of Arabs, Palestinians, um, and they were given citizenship. Um, I think because the UN like forced them to do that. Um, just so they can recognize the state as a democratic state. Um, but since since the establishment of the state, like 1948 until 1966, uh, this minority has been put under a military government. Um, so yes, they had citizenship, but at the same time, um, in order to move around, uh, they needed permits from the military officers. Um, mm political organization was illegal for them. Uh, the news was controlled by Arab Jews who came from Arab countries. So they were the ones who uh, di dictated what news uh, would arrive into these uh, Palestinian villages. Um, the teaching curriculums for school was controlled by Israeli Jews. Um, so we see that like from 1948 until 1966, the state of Israel has really controlled and contained uh, the minority. Um, and the goal behind it was to really shape an identity that wouldn't, that wouldn't struggle for freedom, uh, one that would accept its status as uh, second-class citizens within the state of Israel. Um, and we cannot understand um, who we are today without looking into the past. Uh, so we do have different privileges, if I want to call it that, compared mm -hmm. to Palestinian subjects under military occupation today in the West Bank. So if you've listened to the, the podcast episode last time with Mundir Ishaq, Mundir is a subject under military occupation, uh, meaning yeah. he doesn't have citizenship without, within the state of Israel, and he cannot, he doesn't have the right to choose who governs him as a, a subject under occupation. 
whereas Palestinians in Israel, in theory, have the right to vote uh, for the parliament to choose who can go into the government. Of course, not everyone with every ideology can run um, to to power, um, to, mm. to have a chair within the parliament. You have to uh, follow the rules of the state of Israel and adhere to the to saying that the state of Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. So if you challenge one of those, uh, you can illegally be outlawed, easily be outlawed. Um, And the standard joke amongst left-wing Israelis is that it's uh, democratic for us and Jewish for the Palestinians. Exactly. Um, I I don't know if we have enough time to speak about different laws that were enacted within the state of Israel. but many people go back to the nation state uh, bill law, like the nation state bill. Um, I think it was enacted in 2016. Um, and it's a basic law. So the state of Israel does not have a constitution. Uh, so mm. in order to build a constitution, uh, the system is that we can have basic laws uh, that demand a vast majority to enact. And through accumulating these uh, these basic laws, we can have a constitution. Uh, and this law specifically uh, says that only the Jews have the right of self-determination uh, mm-hmm. within the land. And of course, the land uh, is not identified with having borders. So the way that yeah. the mm. state uses these laws yeah. uh, and its ambiguities um, is to expand Right. Um, is to keep that uh, that goal of expansion uh, yeah. within the land, uh, and that Jewish uh, settlement is a higher value of the state. Uh, and within this law, also Arabic stopped being an official language of of the state. Um, when you have twenty one percent of the population speaks Arabic as a mother language, Arabic is not an official language anymore. Um, mm. So the state of Israel doesn't really. I don't think it holds up to what democratic means. Yeah, mm-hmm. It is really democratic for the Jews. Um, and there is a hierarchy within the population. So you have um, Jews who come from European countries, who Ashkenazi we call Jews, Ashkenazi like, Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the Mizrahi Jews, who are Jews mm-hmm. who came from Arab countries. Um, and then I don't know if it if and then I can I can think of Druze who are Palestinian citizens of Israel, but mm-hmm. again, um, with the divide and rule uh, policies and uh, practices, they became this ethnic group uh, that's now different from other Palestinians. And then there's Palestinian citizens of Israel. I'm not sure where Ethiopians stand in this hierarchy, but also the state of Israel is very much white supremacist. So people who have darker skin also face racism within the state. Um, And then we go to Palestinians who are in Jerusalem. So there's a status for uh, residency in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Those who have residency but are not citizens. Uh, So they really are in this this awkward uh, and very difficult status because if they leave for enough time, their residency can be revoked. 
therefore, there'll be like ethnically cleansed from Jerusalem, which is the goal. But if they stay, they cannot even vote for the government. Um, and it is the government that decides the city planning within Jerusalem. So it's uh, easy that they cannot also choose who governs them. And then there's Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Gaza. Eh? And if we think about the refugees and their relationship That's to right. the state of mm. Israel, yeah. Um, yeah. then there's that. Um, and I, I can really, I yeah. can really hear the vulnerability of even discussing it. And and just to draw our listeners' attention to the fact that that there is even like risk involved in speaking the truth about this. Um, if if we can, we'd love to hear you speak a little bit around this journey and where it started for for you around encountering the scriptures. Um, not to lose that conversation we're having but to allow that to like um, cook in the background and return to as we explore a little bit of your personal narrative. Do you remember the first time you encountered the Bible? I don't remember because I was always within Christian circles. Um, I was born, <laughs> I was born a Christian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even I went to kindergarten. It was, um, it was run by nuns. So, and apparently my favorite person there was a nun as well. So um, when I was baptized, um, I don't know if this is a practice also within Protestant or evangelical um, churches, but I'm originally Greek uh, Catholic, mm. Malkite. Um, mm -hmm. So when I was baptized, I was given a name for baptism. And mm. they gave me the name Michelle because I really liked this nun who was called Michelle. Oh, wow. So That's I was beautiful. also, yeah, I was always within Christian circles. Um, I then went to private schools, Christian private schools. So, yeah, I always knew I was Christian. Um, and the Bible was, even if I didn't hold the book itself, like verses from the Bible or stories from the Bible, mm. watching movies about it. Um, so it was always, always there. Um, I think... My journey is more of uh, trying to understand what the Bible is yeah. um, and how the church deals with the Bible, how, how it uses it, how it uses the stories within it, um, and what kind of messaging we get from the church. Yeah. Uh, with What does it mean to be Christian and a Jesus follower? Yeah. Um, and it, it is very different if you look at the different denominations. Yeah, um, that's right. And yeah, so I grew up Greek Catholic, and then in high school, I started going to a Baptist church, mm. um, which was then, um, as, a, as a teenager, I started asking these big questions of like, who am I? Um, and back mm. then, I was in this program where I met Palestinians from the West Bank and Jerusalem. Um, which, again, if you know, we live very separated. So it was the first time for me to encounter Palestinians who very comfortably called themselves Palestinians. And wow. For me, it was a shock because I, in this program, I was called a Palestinian, but then I didn't fully feel comfortable with saying that because I'm not mm -hmm. suffering as others are suffering. So how can I say that I'm Palestinian? Uh, if our experience is one of suffering. Um, 
So I was going to this church and, you know, more like in, in this more evangelical background, um, we do like to interrogate the Bible and we do like to <laughs> like um, bring up questions of faith and atheism and all of these things. Um, and in parallel, I was having these, this identity crisis uh, wow. because in school, we're not taught that we're Palestinians. Again, the school system teaches us that we're Arabs and we don't learn the entire history. Um, I would say now that we learn a wrong history as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was going to church. No one talks about politics. I go and meet these friends. Mm. And they asked me, so what does it mean to be Christian? Um, and I really had to struggle to understand that um, if the church is silent or if the church, people in the church, youth leaders, uh, pastors kept telling me that I was being too political or we cannot talk about these things and that we should give to Caesar what's owed to, like, to Caesar mm-hmm. and we should pray for the authorities that empower um, and try to be good citizens. Mm. But this that didn't fit. Um, it di- it didn't resonate. I was. It made me angry. Like, how can we not think about politics when we brief politics? Yes, yeah, right. Um, yeah. No, that's that's good. So, I um, you already kind of touched on it. Some like hinting at like, well, more broadly in terms of the different ways that. Christianity is being expressed in its relationship to the political, socio-political world that you're a part of. How would you describe specifically like um, how the Bible was being used and how you were encountering it? You know, um, was the Bible something that was weaponized? Were you experiencing it as something healing and liberative? Was it oppressive? Was it complicated and a whole bunch of things? But what would you say? And I'd be curious to hear also the differences within both the Greek Catholic, you know, space, other than also the Baptist space, Mm. how you were encountering the Bible in those different um, spaces. Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. I think I just have to like, um, say that since high school, I haven't gone to the Greek Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, and I didn't go to church so much growing up. So yeah. my experience was more of a, a within uh, the school that I was going to, which, which was uh, Greek Catholic. Um, the Lent season uh, where we had morning prayers and we would mm-hmm. go there. And usually the tradition would use the Psalms uh, to lead the prayers. Um, so I think in these two, if we talk about the Baptist and then the Greek, uh, Catholic, they have very different approaches towards the Bible. Yeah. Um, and I would say because the Greek Catholic has a rich tradition of the church mm. while the Baptist does not in right. comparison. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. So when we look in the Greek Catholic, we spoke about saints, um, Mm-hmm. There was a liturgy that was very much in motion that existed yep. for hundreds yep. of years. Yep. Um, and yeah, when I was taught what is Christianity and what is the Bible in within the Greek Catholic, we would read the Bible, uh, but it wouldn't be the sole authority. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about, well, they don't really 
use the word theology so much, but when we talk about the theology, what we believe in, the Trinity. The tradition, yeah. Um, there is very much focus on the tradition um, yeah. and the ch- church fathers. Uh, while within the Baptist, it was really like everyone had a Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone prayed that night and they had devotion time. Um, and it's a very different approach to, to the text. Um, and unfortunately, within the Baptist church, like they don't teach people proper exegesis. Like, we, just, <laughs> we just take the Bible as is. Um, Start grabbing and plundering Bible verses, right? <laughs> yep. Um, but, but, uh, I would say that my way, church was better than others. To be, okay. Just to, to oh, give them cute. the that's great. Yeah. The respect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Most of the the community there was very well educated. So, like, oh, yeah, we can see that like the Bible wasn't weaponized, but at the same time, it wasn't used to speak the truth. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, mm. yeah, that's subtle. Yeah, yep. I appreciate. That. And my my experience of worshiping with. Uh, the Maronites is that um, there is so much scripture in the liturgy, like whether it is um, spoken or chanted or sung, you're going to have an Old Testament reading, you'll have a reading from the prophets, there's Psalms, uh, there's a reading from uh, Epistle, and there's also the Gospel reading. So ironically, there's there's actually more scripture um, people uh, swimming in, so to speak, in Mass, in, in a service on Sunday. Um, and the the focus on the saints is like if you experience this right, you end up living like them. <laughs> so it's almost like a hermeneutic. But um, uh, it, you know, Baptists only have one saint, Billy Graham. So it's <laughs> it doesn't have the Billy it doesn't Graham. have the same. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm kidding some, but I, I I'm interested in terms of. Um, your own experience and your own story and what what you would hope others would take into consideration as they encounter the scriptures. I guess what I'm getting at is there's so many people who listen to the podcast because they're, they're seeking to um, be attentive to that intuition and sneaking suspicion in themselves that this is really supposed to set me free. This really is supposed to be liberating. Um we're giving you permission to name your hermeneutic, your way of reading from your own experience that you would hope others would read through these lenses as they encounter the scriptures. This is, this is the question that I've been having recently. Um, I think since 2019, for some reason, I sort of stopped reading the Bible so much. Mm. Um, and just recently I've been realizing that um, as a Palestinian Christian community um, we've been really cut off from our tradition because um, mm. when we think of the church in Palestine and if we really move to Palestine geographically when you think about it um, the churches today are not in contact or they're not in communication with the tradition of the churches that existed in the land Mm. since the beginning. Um, Mm. And today, as we speak Arabic, we don't read Arabic Christians. Um, So our conversation, the way that we read the Bible, is one that has a Western epistemology Mm. uh, where Mm -hmm. we focus so much 
um, on these like different ways of exegesis. Uh, but we forget that for 2,000 years, people have believed what we now have inherited. And we don't look back on that. Um, wow. So I think one way we can start doing that is like for people in their own places to really look back on the history, um, especially if they're in colonial situations. Mm. Um, the colonial powers uh, would not want you to know your history, would not want you to know mm. um, who you are um, and have an independent identity that's not uh, defined by your colonial um, status. Um, so really look back into what happened in history. Um, who were the people who came before you and witnessed for the gospel? Um, and then what did they have to say? Um, in many cases, you wouldn't see women who ha we have the writings that survive. Um, most of the mm. time, I think in our context, we would see men. Uh, but these men, um, I think they were very courageous and they really struggled with the questions of their times, especially with the rise of Islam. How can we think of Christianity when they, we have there's another religion that's on the rise? Um, and how can we have conversations in between these religions? Um, mm. And how can we live peacefully with people who believe different things than us? Um, yes. So it, I think that like gives us a shift of um, the purpose isn't to convince others that we are right, but to really interrogate ourselves and interrogate our tradition, interrogate the Bible, um, into teaching us how to live in love towards one another um, mm. and it's not about um, making the country Christian and it's not about um, yeah, well. yeah, trying to convert people to Christianity but how can we live uh, with, in actual love? How can we accept the otherness of the other um, and how can we like break away from these like nation state styles of life um, and how can we really wow. sit comfortably with the plurality of, of the community that we live in. Um, so I think as Palestinians, if we don't realize this and we don't understand this, we will never break away from our coloniality um, mm. and the coloniality that we have within our theology today. Um, yeah, so the wow. Bible is something that we've inherited, uh, but we've also inherited a tradition um, and we have to look back to that tradition as well. So they have to be in a balance. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, as a, a follow-up, if you don't mind me asking, um, when you pray the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father in English versus when you pray it in Arabic, how does how does how does it feel? Uh, I guess I'm asking because um, uh, I know for so many um, the English language itself plays into the individualistic um, uh, kind of worldview. Like, it, um, uh, is praying the prayer that Jesus taught us 
Does it impact you differently praying in the tongue of your ancestors versus the tongue of those who controlled the mandate after the Ottomans um, fell apart? Um, I think for me, when I pray in Arabic, it goes like deep, deeper emotionally for me. Um, and it connects to another level of hopes and dreams. Um, wow. If I wanted to, yeah, to frame it that way. Um, when I pray in Arabic, when I say that your kingdom come, um, suddenly I think of not just Palestine, but the entire region. How can the kingdom come um, mm. for the entire region that was destroyed because of colonialism mm -hmm. and American imperialism? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is different. Um, suddenly the priorities shift uh, when we speak from one language to the other, because the, the language also sorts of carries the culture with it, or yes. carries the philosophy of the people. Um, and to follow follow up on that, like that's why um, I think many of us who are a bit younger um, have realized that our theology in Palestine has to be communicated in Arabic. We have to think in Arabic. It's not just the matter wow. of writing. We have to think in Arabic. We have to live within our communities in Arabic. Um, and then from there, really think about where is God in this? Um, how mm. can we think about God in our experience? Because uh, then suddenly we're going to use words that are also used by Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to use um, stories that are very common to the community mm. um, and that way we can actually speak to the community so it's it's really a matter of audience mm. um, wow yeah and the purpose behind it yeah thank you yeah that's really good I really appreciate the way that you're I mean you've talked about identity your Palestinian identity um tradition and history mm. um and being grounded in that um a vision of a way of living into the plurality that exists mm -hmm. in once you're grounded in your own story um and that kind of ongoing need for decolonizing the christianity that you've inherited and i and i appreciate how you you've been pushing us the whole time to think about that in relationship to truth right and how we've been formed and the kind of Western epistemological assumptions that we have and all these things. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really, um, well, and before I go, it made me think as you were talking earlier about, um, so um, what's his name? Carter Woodson, early 20s, you know, he had a book, you know, The Miseducation of the Negro, right? Mm -hmm. um, and really deeply believed, you know, that we had to do the work of telling our own story of telling the truth of our extending our own identity and that's certainly been certainly for black americans a part of our journey is always grappling with that in the degrees that um we are internalizing right these kind of dominant myths or we are resisting and finding ways to kind of recover uh more grounding stories that are more truthful and more revelatory and more um open this up to understand ourselves and others better so mm. all that in 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 mind um i'd love for you to bring some of that 
back as we kind of return back to this passage that you chose for us and um as we, you think about like what is truth and what does that really mean in light of all these kind of conversations that we've been having together um how would you kind of lead us into that return to that conversation around truth and john yeah um I think what's really pressing me at the moment is that um, I need to know. Yeah, I, I just need to know what happened um, both in history, but also within the churches. Who was there before me? Um, mm -hmm. Because I hear names here and there of different priests who have led movements for equal rights. Um, mm -hmm. And... They've really sacrificed so the community can yes. have, um, yeah, to regain some of its rights to go back home uh, after being displaced. Um, and as Christians, we have we have to basically, yeah, to find all of these sources to really build that knowledge again um, and make it accessible for the church to use it. Mm -hmm. um, if that's maybe the, the work of the theologians or historians, uh, but it has to be something, it has to be a project that uh, would really focus on how can we serve the church um, with the truth that we have um, and allowing people to think of different ways to break out of these the box uh, of mm -hmm. the categories that we have. Um, and when I I think there's so much centrality in the church with like different uh, Palestinians, authors, or theologians who have written, and especially their writings in Arabic uh, with local theology. There's so much emphasis on the role of the church. Um, there's a role for the church in all of this and in seeking justice. Um, but unfortunately, um, the church as we see today in Palestine um, it's corrupt. We have a corrupt church, uh, mm -hmm. be it with the traditional churches. And when I say traditional, I mean Greek church, Greek Catholic, the Catholic church, um, which is the majority of the Christians belong to these churches in the land. Mm -hmm. um, but we see the priests, they, well, first of all, the these churches do not ordain women. So we see that there's a yeah, there is a monopoly over who can have authority in saying what's right and wrong, uh, who mm -hmm. can set the theology, who can preach in church. Um, but these churches, we see the priests selling our lands to Israeli settlers, or mm. um, wow. the church cannot uh, handle its money wisely, therefore has to sell our lands in Nazareth so they can like pay debts in Jordan. Um, or they're them themselves are corrupt, so they steal from the church. Um, mm. We don't deal with sexual harassment issues mm. within the church. We don't talk wow. about rape. We don't talk about, yeah, we just like, we pretend nothing exists, like that is nothing is wrong. Um, and just because we don't hear about it, because the way our society functions is by silencing the victims, and when we don't hear it, then we just pretend it doesn't exist, um, which is very problematic. How can we yeah. talk about truth when we're not capable and we don't want to face the truth of what's going on within our own churches? Um, 
And this relates to so many things that also are cultural. Um, as Christians um, within Palestine, and I would say as Christians who are Israeli citizens specifically, um, we've sort of bought into this neoliberal um, lifestyle where what is important is that we have a good job, that we get paid so much money, um, that we have the best clothes we can get, have good food, um, have drive a nice car. Um, and I understand that this comes from, like its roots come from the survival mode that we've put under since mm -hmm. the military government and since the Nakba in 1948. But the church does not speak to this. Actually, the church sort of encourages mm -hmm. it by wow. having very expensive summer camps uh, with Christian schools that are so expensive. Even our parents that are middle class have to, actually, have to really think of how they can pay tuition for these schools that are the best in the country. Mm -hmm. um, but we've sort of managed to keep the wealth that we have within the community um, and really disregard the poverty that exists in our communities. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't speak about poverty. Whenever I went to church, the few times that I did in the past few years, there was no mention of anything that's going on in our community. Um, mm. The murder, wow. the constant murder, the gangs that are supported by the state of Israel. Um, we don't talk about corruption. We don't talk about women's rights. We don't talk about anything. So, the ch yeah, when I talk about like the, the Bible isn't used for truth. Mm. It's used mm. to like communicate again and again. Uh, about the Trinity, about Jesus is God and Jesus is human, and like these like more traditional um, dogmas of the church, but the church does not serve the local community. Um, wow. So, and it's really a crisis for me because um, when I think about it, what am I supposed to go back to after I'm done? doing a PhD in theology. Um, hmm. Traditional churches, I don't think they would listen to me because I'm a woman. Um, it's, it's built in the theology that women don't have authority. Um, but then within, let's say, the civil society or different organizations, you need to be close to someone who has authority so you can get the mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. um, and if you actually talk about these things, uh, talk about all of what I've mentioned, the intersectionalities of oppression, uh, gender, class, racialization, ethnicity, religion, um, sexuality, then you're labeled as this Westerner. Uh, you're too liberal, too oh. progressive, yeah. um, because we're not, we don't want to. A, interrogate ourselves. We don't want to put the mirror in front of us and see mm -hmm. the ugliness that we have um, and the ways that we have failed to be a loving community. Um, so, yeah, when we think of truth, it's not just um, the proper theology of Christ. Like, right. just before... Abstract Jesus, doctrines. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, and if you look at the verse just before 
uh, Jesus says, and you will know the truth. It was, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you truly follow Christ, if you truly, and if we understand truly what, what it means to carry the cross, mm. then we will be ready to even encounter the truth. Um, because the truth will, like if we are people who will fight for the truth, who will seek the truth, um, within the context we live in, under settler colonialism or apartheid, um, and under a situation where religion is weaponized against different communities, um, we will suffer. And it's not an easy task. Um, mm. But as long as we only have individuals who are speaking up for it, and we don't have a church, um, a local church that is ready to do the work um, and is ready to change their mode of life and what meaning they get from living in the land, then we will not be following Jesus. And I don't think we are following Jesus mm. in the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, Yes, there are theologians who are doing the work. Yes, there are people who are speaking up. Yes, but they are a minority. Uh -huh. um, and especially when we talk about the church and who runs the church, we cannot ignore the, if we want to say the colonialism within the church. The uh -huh. Greek Orthodox Church is run by Greeks. It's not run by pa Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Catholics, the Greek Catholic and the Catholic Church, they have to submit to the to the Pope and the different officials they get from from Rome. Mm -hmm. So the interests of the church are not to serve the local community. It's mm -hmm. to preserve the stones of the of the churches. So And at the cost of the living stones. At, yes. at the cost of the people. By yeah. Yeah. Mara, I'm I'm struck as you were talking about um, what it is to take up your cross, um, that sometimes, uh, for, for lack of a better term, the, the whistle-blowing implications of discipleship, what it is to embody a truth in such a way that it challenges the lies of the systems that have formed around, particularly in um, situations of oppression, um, sometimes the cross becomes a metaphor for not challenging the oppression, but the oppression itself. And in such a kind of way of speaking about the cross, there can sometimes be a glorification of the oppression itself instead of something that would actually look like, mirror, imitate the life of our Lord, which challenges the oppression. I'm fascinated, um, given um, your particular um uh, area of study around uh, uh, feminism and also um, your exposure and putting in conversation um, womanist uh, yeah, theologians and um, uh, well maybe I'll handball to you Drew there, there's the setup um, well to no I, you didn't have to but I was also interested in just hearing about um, particularly how um, uh, what womanist theologians have you engaged and how has that been shaping your thinking i could hear it even in how you were talking about intersectionality race class yeah. and gender and and such but i'd love to hear a little bit more about um how maybe some of these black women's voices 
are resonating with you and your own lived experience in your own context. Mm. Yeah. I would say I started reading womanist theology only in the last like maybe two years. So it's yeah. pretty new for me. Um, mm -hmm. I started with reading Kitty Cannon, um, mm -hmm. Dolores Williams, um, mm -hmm. and Kelly Brown Douglas. Yep. Yes. And right. Classics right there. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think what struck me is the how beautiful it is. Um, yes. To, on the one hand, really challenge oppression, really challenge uh, sin within the community, but at the same time, being able to imagine wholeness, to really think about what a healthy life would look like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think I've never really thought about this before. Um, mm, we would that's know incredible. many times, if you ask Palestinians, what do you want? Uh, they can tell you with a negative of, we don't want oppression. We don't want occupation. Mm -hmm. But then you ask them, so what, what does that look like? And we don't have answers for it yet. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't allowed ourselves this space to imagine what a healthy life looks like. Um, and I think partially because we do oppress one another um, and we do benefit from this oppression towards one another. Um, and it's, as I said, it's really a survival game. Yeah. Um, and it's not... Mm. Yeah, it's not to serve one another, but to actually just live a comfortable life. Um, and the way that these uh, theologians, the womanists, like have reread the Bible, reread the story, especially uh, like with the story of Hagar, and yeah, mm -hmm. my mind yeah. was blown. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because if you just read the story as is, without thinking too much about it. Uh, well, because you weren't taught to think about it, really. Mm -hmm. um, right. You would see that it's either okay what Abraham and Sarah did to Hagar, mm -hmm. um, but to our story um, as Palestinians or as, as Arabs, um, within the Muslim tradition and many others, um, we are called sons of Ishmael, as mm -hmm. if like, we descend from Ishmael. Um, and then if you really read the text, as, as especially with the second encounter of Hagar with God, um, mm. we would read that God tells Hagar that um, Ishmael will become like a, a donkey or something. Um, and the way that this has been interpreted, at least from Western churches, is that this is a curse. Um, Right. Actually, we grow up learning how good the donkey is as an animal. Mm. It's a smart animal. Mm. Uh, our Palestinian uh, grandfathers used it to, yeah, to decide where the go the road goes because the donkey mm. is so smart. They will show you the way, mm. um, <laughs> and it's a strong animal. Um, even Jesus rode a donkey going into That's Jerusalem. Right. So how can mm. we even think of the donkey as a curse? Yeah. Um, but it's really these these ways of rereading the text, lifting up women, um, and looking that Hagar is a very strong woman. Yeah. How are we not lifting up our strong women in the community? Mm -hmm. um, and if we think about what's going on in Gaza, like the 
the experiences of women in Gaza now, if we think about those who are pregnant or are giving birth, are doing C-sections without anesthetics, Um, those who give birth but then they know that their child will probably get killed or die in the next few weeks just because there's no food there's no clean water Mm -hmm. Um, can we think of these women and their experiences as valid enough for us um, to reflect theologically can we think about uh, now the story of Advent in a bit the story of Jesus' birth can we think of that in yeah. light of what's going on in Gaza? That's right, um, yeah. And I think these women as theologians have really allowed me the space to start mm-hmm. thinking about this. Yeah. Um, at the beginning, it was more of a, this like feeling of excitement and of like, oh, I've discovered something so good. Mm. Um, and it took me so much time to understand well, how does that, how can I think of these terms? Uh, how yeah. can I uh, break the boundaries of what our ethical imagination looks like um, mm. back home? Like, how can I do that in Palestine? And it takes time. I think it's not easy to be able to do that when we don't have, when I don't have many people who I can speak about it with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I do believe that there's, n- no one does theology on their own. It's always right, a right. communal conversation. Yep. Uh, yes, there will be a name of one person on the book, but it's very rarely the work of only that person. It is a conversation. Um, and yeah, this, I hope we can, when I say we, it is a we, uh, we can. We can do this work in Palestine. Um, and I don't expect this to be only the work of people who identify as women. I think the liberation of women is very much a part of liberating Palestine. We cannot leave people behind when we talk about liberation in Palestine. We cannot Absolutely. just say, okay, we'll just liberate the land and then figure things out. Like, no, it doesn't work this way. Right. Um, mm. When we talk about the liberation movement, are we including women? Are we including the LGBT, LGBTQ people? Yeah. Um, are we including those who have um, bodily needs that our community does not allow them the space to exist among wow. us? Yeah. Um, and if we're not going to have um, a vision or if we're not considering all of these others that we have within our community, um, when we think about church, when we think about theology, when we think of what future do we imagine, we have failed to be loving towards others. And we won't liberate ourselves because we will keep these patriarchal structures that don't give space for people to live comfortably and freely um, oh. and healthy, live a healthy life. Yeah, that's so good. Mara, I, I I wish you were my pastor. Honestly, like, um, the yeah, it's it's incredible the work that you're doing and the depth of which you are um uh, not merely like thinking but like feeling your way to truth, and um, it, it's just been wonderful. This. Um, pass out to explore some of that with you. Um, will, will you come back at a later date? 
Would you come and Sorry? hang out with us again? Oh, sure. I would love to. Um, I think it we really helps me to think yeah. about like, to how, how can I put what I'm thinking in words? Um, mm. And I honestly hope that people back home would listen to this as well, although it is mm-hmm. in English, but the people who need to hear this understand English. Um, so that shouldn't be the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I hope I don't get frustrated this time. Um, and we actually can work together as a community to first um, just hand us down whatever uh, mm. these people who worked in the liberation movement um, since the first Intifada uh, in the 80s until like the 2000s. Uh, people mm. might say it's 2015 or 16. Sure. Um, but to like hand us down your work. Um, so we can work together um, and have this intergenerational dialogue or conversation. Um, and then maybe, uh, I know that my, yeah, my chances or my opportunities will be limit, limited compared to other guys that I'm friends with who do similar work. Mm. Um, just because if we think about even like, if I can say that, like, I have a calling to become a pastor or be ordained in the church, it's only the Lutheran church that ordains women back home. And when wow. we talk about the Lutheran church, it's like 2,000 people. It's like a very, very small church. Yeah. And all of the other churches, um, at least if I'm just going to name them, so maybe they can do the work for it. The <laughs> Anglican church. Yeah. I know people, I know priests who say they are pro-woman ordination, but are they doing the work to allow woman ordination in our diocese? Um, Are they supporting women to train theologically? Um, From my experience, I haven't seen that. Uh, And most most of the women have to fight to be able to do this on their own, Um, while many of the guys are like, they're pushed, they're encouraged, mm. uh, they're, some of them also get mentorship. Yeah. Um, so and why are we not thinking of, if you say you want women to be a part of the theological conversation, why are you not supporting the woman? Mm-hmm. Um, mm, that's right. And it's not difficult. You're not inventing the wheel. No. <laughs> You're not doing something that's so strange. It's exactly doing what you do for the other other. Men, just yep. do it for the women. It's not yep. very difficult. Yeah. Um, yep. No, that's, yeah, I hope that's one day true. we all will be liberated. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's so good. No, I really appreciate this whole conversation and um, just the multifaceted way that you've been talking about truth, right? Yeah. Um, embodying it um, in the kind of um, integrity that that takes seeking after it right um um speaking truth conversing with others because we don't have it all right um i just yeah i just appreciate all of that and the ongoing challenge and i think in the same way that i'm really i find i find joy when i hear you uh speaking about womanist theology in such ways but you can also know that you also are offering gifts to us as well and that's right um we're really grateful, certainly on my side and Turtle Island here, 
in what is now called United States, right? Um, in the Black church, um, so much of what you talked about, the Black middle class in the church, we've got to wrestle with a lot of that same stuff that you were talking about as well. Um, so anyway, just th thankful for you and the gift that you offered today. Amen, amen. But I, I hope um, I hope we're friends now, and I hope we continue to be a part, a small part maybe, of your we. Um, you talked about like we doing theology together. Thank you for including us in that. And from these lands we now refer to as Australia, um, the incredible gift um, for this Jew-ish, if you know what I mean, like I'm not, like I'm not, um, and Irish um, Aussie, um, the, the incredible gift of what you've invited us into and your humility in discussing it um, uh, and to talk so humbly about realities that are so personal um, and to not, not cut them off from their political implications. We just really appreciate that. Murray, you might not realise, but there are people here from Germany, from South Africa, um, from uh, Finland, um, or Norway, um, who are all hoping to have um, uh, some time to discuss things with you now. But in terms of our official podcast, we'll just say thank you and we'll make sure that we'll put up the links. Um, but on behalf of the podcast, um, thank you. And now we'll just spend some time with the Inverse community. Yeah, thank you so much. The Inverse podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.